Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to introduce uh, David Manor to you, uh, Dr. David Manor. I don't know how many people call you doctor, but I'm calling you doctor today. Uh, David has been part of our story. Um, not many would know that. But David has been very much someone that I and Brian and, uh, have gone to uh, frequently. Uh, he has become a trusted uh, voice of guidance, of wisdom, of experience and perspective uh, in our uh, journey, especially the last couple years. Um, David has also not just been like from an organizational point of view, a trusted voice. He's also been the voice of a trusted friend. And uh, I've known David for a long time. Uh, David serves as the executive director of our two-state convention, Kansas and Nebraska, called Church Forward. And uh, we have 470-some churches in our two states, and Dave gives le- David gives leadership. We- we're not... We don't have a hierarchy in our denomination. Each church is self-governing and autonomous. But David does oversee and is aware of kind of the situations in our churches. And he's been a really, really helpful coach uh, to us. I want to give you a couple of his stats. David graduated from Oklahoma Baptist University in 19-something. And... uh, and then got his master's at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, which is also where I, we may have been there at the same time, in 19-something as well. And, uh, and then he has his doctorate in worship from the Robert E. Webster Institute of Worship Studies. And uh, so he brings a rich background of worship uh, into his leadership and uh, one of the things that I'm excited about him doing, uh, facilitating and being with us is in communion. And we're go- he's, he's going to start that way uh, in kind of facilitating us in a time of communion that we're going to share uh, together. So, uh, David, come on up. I'm going to pray as you do. And let's let the Lord invite us and welcome and guide us this morning. Father... Uh, this is us, um, as we are. We are so grateful that we have knowledge that you are and have been at work. And so, Lord, we, we know that much of your work is in the realm of mystery to us. So often we don't, we don't see very much sometimes of what you're painting, but we, we do know that you are a master painter. And uh, we're grateful for your presence and activity. And we can, we can rest in the reality that our lives and our community is not something we can or have to make happen. But we can trust your guidance and your work in us. We're so, um, I'm just grateful for that, Lord, um, that you are over all this. We pray that you would guide David as he's with us this morning as we begin with communion and then move on into a few other components after that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Thank you, Jim. Uh, Jim is a good friend. Um, Brian is becoming even more of a good friend, and it's been good to get to hang out with these guys. And um, thank you, Ben, for leading us. Known Ben for a few years too, and appreciate his leadership. And uh, like Jim, uh, uh, we we didn't actually coordinate the songs that Ben led this morning, but it, they were perfect. Holy Spirit works through us independently to come to that place and. As we uh, talk this morning, even with communion, and as we have kind of the, the question time at the end where Jim and Brian will come up and we'll talk about some of these things, that text that, that Ben led us in, that strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, that's, I think that's my goal this morning as, as we have gathered together around the table and as we look at this text, as we talk and have questions a little bit later, I think that maybe is our goal of today, that God would give us that strength that we need to, uh, for today, but also that bright hope for tomorrow as churches are facing, you know, what the future looks like. So we are going to begin the service just a little bit different after the music worship and that we're going to be worshiping at the table too. So I encourage you in just a few moments, we're going to come together at the table before we actually move into other parts of the service. I do want to say, too, it's good to see some familiar faces of George and Carolyn. George worked at the convention for two decades. Uh, we worked together there, so a very trusted friend. And uh, Becky and Brian, um, I'm the executive director of the convention. Becky's actually the one that runs it. Uh, she, does, uh, she is our business administrator, bookkeeper, so you know she handles the purse strings. We can't do anything without Becky. I always have to ask Becky, can we afford to do this? And so she's a a great trusted colleague in ministry too. So as we get into communion this morning, I was thinking about when I was a child, I used to love communion. Now when we had communion, and many of you remember this too, when you were growing up, when we had communion, we had the little glasses, little cups like this. They were actually real glass. They didn't use the plastic ones. And some of us had those when we were growing up. And what the deacons would have to do after the service is gather all of those cups up from the, the pew racks and go and wash them after the service. I love Communion Sunday because my buddies and I, after the service each Sunday that we had communion, would go around and collect those cups and stack them up. You might think, well, that's noble for you to do that. Well, it was not that noble. Because we weren't collecting the cups to, to, the cups to stap, stack them up and help the deacons. We were collecting those cups so we could get the last drop of juice out of each one of those cups from the Purek. Now, we, we laugh at that remembrance of communion, and yet some of our observances of communion are just as trite and shallow. We know we have a spiritual mandate to actually observe this ordinance, and yet sometimes we may be wondering, are we missing something? Sometimes it just seems like a, a, a routine, or it seems rote, or it seems stale. So are, are we missing something, or can we ask for more from the table? Some might even say, let's not observe communion too often, so it doesn't become too routine or rote or, or ritualistic as we celebrate at the table. But actually in our efforts to not be too routine at the table, it may have in fact become so routine that it no longer calls forth the reality that it symbolizes. You see, asking for more from communion, asking for more when we come to the table, doesn't mystically change the, the grape juice and the bread, it changes us. 
and our attitude toward the table and that understanding. See, our, our prayer is that by observing communion often as a church, by remembering and repeating it often, coming to the table together, it allows us to spiritually go this time where we may not have had the resolve to spiritually go last time. That's why we keep coming back. We come back to the table and we can remember in new ways each time we come to the table. A number of years ago, uh, my wife Karen and I have a daughter, uh, Jessa, who's 31 now, and uh, have, we have a, a grandson, our first grandchild. I had to mention that, obviously. It has nothing to do with the message. We've got to toss that in. But when Jessa went to college and, um, more than a decade ago, uh, she moved from Topeka and also went to Oklahoma Baptist University. And, and I remember uh, Karen and I taking Jessa to college five hours away. And when we left her at campus five hours away, we were grieving. We were, in fact, we were weeping the whole drive back to Topeka from Oklahoma. And we decided when we got back that we were going to go into her bedroom and just spend some time in her bedroom remembering because we knew that it would never exactly be the same again. So we sat on the side of her bed again, and we, we looked around that room to remember. And again, we were weeping that and grieving that loss in our life. Even though she was still a part of our life, it would never be the same again. And I realized then that that remembrance was unique. And so even weeks and months and maybe even years afterward, as we kept her bedroom in place there for when she came home, I would uh, occasionally step into her bedroom just to remember again. And I would step in and I would, I would look around that room and there were times when I would look around and I would see those mementos and those stuffed animals and those, those pictures on her wall and those souvenirs from vacation. And some of those things would cause me to have this, this joy and even a celebration. And, and maybe even I would laugh out loud at some of those, those pictures and the remembrances of, of those stories around those pictures. And I would remember in that way. And then there are other times when I would step into a room and remember and I, again, I would remember some of those things that would never be again. And again, I would have that grief, that loss, and maybe even weep that, that was no longer available. I went back often to remember in her room because I realized that each time I stepped into that remembrance, spending that time in her room to remember, the remembrance was rarely manifested in the same way twice. That's why I came back often. It's also true of the table as we gather around the table together, that as we remember when we come to the table, there's some great truths that we can learn each time that we come. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul is giving instructions to the church at Corinth, and he's helping them understand that some of the things that they're doing around the table are, are self-serving. And so he's giving them some instructions about how they should observe communion. When we remember at the communion table, it should then require us or encourage us uh, to have self-examination. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. If not, I'll just read this for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, Paul said this to the church at Corinth, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. So Paul is encouraging them to, to examine their motives when they gather at the table. 
Self-examination helps us then determine our motives when we come to the table together. So at Corinth, the Lord's Supper had become this occasion for, for the church, the people of the church, to be selfish in their relationships with each other. Uh, they were self-serving instead of being selfless, which is what the symbol of the table actually represents. That's selfless, uh, price that Christ paid for us and for them. And they viewed the Lord's Supper as a time to indulge themselves rather than a time to exercise that love that they had for each other. What does that sound like? It sounds like culture, especially over the last three years. That self-indulgence. We weren't, we're not concerned about other people. We're just concerned about ourselves. And Paul reminded them, though, in that time, that because of their attitudes as they gathered around the table, they were actually destroying this community by failing to show love to each other. So self-examination often requires us to sacrifice our preferences because we love Jesus more than we love those preferences. I'm a baseball fan, and uh, baseball season is coming. As soon as we can get through with the Super Bowl, baseball season is just around the corner. And even if you're not a baseball fan, you know that there are, there are a couple of sacrifices in baseball, that sacrifice fly or the bunt. And the sole purpose of one of those sacrifices, the sole purpose of a bunt is for the batter to sacrifice himself or herself for the sake of advancing another runner. And we actually call that laying down a bunt. What a great picture as we gather at the table. That selflessness as we come, as we, as we lay down those preferences. Self-examination allows us to sacrifice and lay down those things that actually divide us. It allows us to say as a congregation, as a body, as a family, we don't have to agree on everything as the body of Christ because we are united in the understanding that Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. There's another remembrance that as we remember at the table from that text in 1 Corinthians, remembrance also inspires communion. Now, we call the table uh, Lord's Supper or communion, or some, in some faith cultures, they call it the Eucharist. There's nothing mystical about that word. It just means thanksgiving. But this morning, as we gather at the table, we want to have this attitude of communion as we remember. Look at verses 18 through 21, and then we're going to skip down to verse uh, 33. Verse 18 says this, For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church... There are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. He's talking about those things that are dividing them. Indeed, it is necessary that there be, be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And when you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's telling them that the attitude with which they're coming to the table is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It should be, but it's not. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Skip down to verse 33, my favorite verse in this whole passage. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. One translation says, wait for one another. In other words, what Paul is saying to them at the table, when we gather to eat, we should all eat together. 
It's that understanding of communion means with union or that fellowship uh, together. Paul spoke about that, that communion as the fellowship of sharing in the body and blood of Christ. So there's two relationships that occur at the table. There's that vertical relationship with, with Christ, that symbolic relationship around these elements with Christ, that vertical relationship. But another uh, uh, relationship that we sometimes miss and sometimes forget, there's also that, that horizontal relationship of the body of Christ, the church, gathering at the table together because we love each other more than we love our preferences. So as we think about coming to the table, and we start asking questions, there's got to be more than this. It's, it seems like that we're missing something. Once we grasp the magnitude of, of living in that remembrance, and that it, it doesn't always have to be manifested in the same way, and then we have that vertical relationship with Christ and that horizontal relationship with each other, once we grasp the magnitude of living in that remembrance, we may never have, again have to ask, is this all there is? We may actually receive more than we could ever dream of or imagine. And that's why we return often to the table. This morning, we're going to ask you to come to the table in just a few moments uh, to observe communion. And it may be different than you normally do it. Uh, intentionally, uh, but, or maybe like you normally do it. But I'll give some instructions, and we're going to pray together. I'm going to read a scripture, and I'm going to ask you to come to the table. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you're invited to come to the table. Because it's not me that is inviting you to come. It's Jesus who is inviting you to come to the table. You're encouraged to come to the table, and here's how I'd like you to come this morning. I encourage you to come with, as families together, you can come. Uh, you can come as your, your CLT groups, small groups together. Um, if you look around and somebody's coming by themselves, invite them to join with your family or your CLT. Or maybe if you're here by yourself and you're not a part of one of those groups, join with some others. Or even if you're just friends here together, come together to the table in these small groups. And here's what I would ask you to do. When you come to the table, take the bread and the cup and don't partake of it here but I encourage you then to go back in your small groups of families or CLTs together, circle up as a small group, spend a few moments praying together, somebody volunteer to pray for the group, and then as a body, as that fellowship together, partake of those elements. We'll have some music playing, uh, and we'll give as much time as you need to spend that time in communion together. Let me pray for us, and I'm going to read a text, and then I'm going to bid you to come to the table. God, as we think about communion, help us to remember in new ways each time we come to the table. Continue to remind us that when we come to the table, we need to have that selflessness exemplified by Christ. And that symbolism of that broken body and that blood spilled for us. As the body of Christ, we should have that same attitude of selflessness instead of selfishness. And maybe... We're not like the church at Corinth, but all of us are selfish. And many of us have relationships that need to be healed. We need hope. We need help. We need that community that's available at the table. As you continue to remind us, too, as we come to the, the table, that, 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 that communion, the Lord's Supper, creates that community. Because Jesus is the one that is inviting us to partake of that. So as we come to the table, Father, help us to come to the table together 
as the body of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as Paul gives those instructions, he, he continues in verses 23 through 26 about actually how to partake the elements. And he says this, for I received from the Lord, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come to the table this morning, those of you who have much faith and those of you who would like to have more. Come to the table, those of you who have been here often and maybe those of you who haven't been here in quite a while. Come to the table, those of us who have tried to follow Jesus and those of us who have failed. Come to the table because it's Jesus who is inviting to join him, inviting us to join him here. So let's stand and come to the table. Let me pray for us again before we move to the next part of our service together. Thank you, God. It's uh, encouraging to see groups of people who love each other gathering around and remembering that price that your son Jesus Christ paid for us that symbolic remembrance of that broken body and shed blood for us remind us too as we come to the table as that text said that we are uh, to do this in remembrance of him until he comes back which also indicates that we we don't just come to the table to remember and grieve, but we come to the table with an attitude of celebration that there is hope. Help us to continue to have that attitude even when we leave today, that strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. We pray this in your name. Amen. I don't think I even need to do this, but we decided I would kind of help us transition uh, out of that really rich time. Uh, and uh, so we're gonna, we are going to transition a bit here and Dave is going to just be with us for a few minutes, just with his voice, and uh, share some things that, that he feels like God has entrusted him to say to and with us. And then Brian and I will come up in just a few minutes. He'll invite us up, and we'll do a little bit of cute question and response uh, with David. So, yeah, David? yeah, thank you, Jim. Yeah, so uh, Jim and Brian and I have been kind of communicating back and forth on Marco Polo about some of these things. But let me say up front that... Um, um, as we talk about some of these things, and I, I want to kind of ask uh, Jim if I could set up before we actually get into the question response time. And we've talked about some of those questions, but as we respond, I'll say this maybe more than one time just to remind you, I don't know your stories. So if you hear a response and assume that Jim or Brian has told me about you and your story related to some of those responses, I don't know that. Uh, you can blame that on the Holy Spirit, not me, not me or Jim or Brian when we get to that place. So, so I hope you'll understand that. But I asked uh, uh, Jim and Brian if I could kind of set this up, because I think it, it helps before we get into uh, questions about what the future might look like for Rock Hill, that, that I talk about uh, some things I've seen 
uh, with not only in our churches around Kansas and Nebraska, but uh, even around the United States, I've had opportunities to be in other state conventions. So I've had numerous conversations, over, especially over the last three years, uh, in light of what churches went through over the last few years, whatever those things happened during these last few years, that in conversations with pastors, leaders, churches, church members uh, across Kansas, Nebraska, and around the United States, uh, people uh, to the person almost said that the last three years of ministry were the hardest season of ministry that, they, that they've ever been through before. People felt like they were getting beaten up from one side or the other, and sometimes both sides at the same time. It, it seemed like no decision that, that churches and leaders made was the right decision. So some of the things that you are sensing and feeling of, of where do we go from here, or how do we move forward in the future, are not unique to Rock Hill. In fact, when Jim and I were, and Brian were, were talking about this one day, he was asking, you know, what here's some of the things that we're sensing and feeling. And, and so what, what does that look like with other churches across the convention? And I said, they're all feeling exactly the same thing. They're, they're struggling to figure out what does it look like in the future for us? I had lunch with one of our largest pastor, the pastor of one of our largest churches in our two states right before Christmas and was having a conversation much like this with him. And, and during the last three years, and this is a very large church, but their, their attendance uh, was cut in half. Uh, and he said, well, where are, where are most churches now? And I told him percentage-wise, kind of what the average is of where churches have come back to. And he indicated that their church, even after three years, is still about 50% of what they were prior to uh, three years ago. So I want you to understand, as we talk about some of these things, uh, what you're sensing and what you're feeling is not unique to Rock Hill. Now, that may not be a lot of consolation, but hopefully you'll realize that you're not alone in wrestling with some of these things. Because what most churches felt and realized that during this season, instead of trusting the, the prayed-through and collaborative leadership uh, of those leaders of the congregations and the people, some of those faithful congregants threatened to and actually did uh, start attending someplace else that better met with their expectations. Now, here's a statistic that surfaced over the last three years. 93% of church growth over the last few years was transfer growth. What that means is, it, it, that could be mean that a family moved to a new community and they joined a, another church in that community. But what m much of that means is they weren't happy with their existing church or didn't, that church didn't meet their expectations and so they, they transferred to another church because of that. So what that also means is that only 7% of the kingdom growth that, that occurred was, was those who are far from Christ and realized that need for Christ and then they connected with the body of believers. So 93% was transfer growth. As a result, I think most of us have realized that how we do church in the future on the backside of this will never be exactly how we did church prior to three years ago. And I believe it shouldn't, or we haven't learned anything these last few years. So much like the Israelites, if you remember the story of the Israelites, they've been wandering around their wilderness for, for 40 years. Much like the Israelites, our churches, your church, 
is also facing that Jordan River to a place of uncertainty. You're getting ready to cross that river. You're not sure what's on the other side. And, and consequently, it causes some anxiety. But I believe not only can it cause some fear and anxiety and uncertainty, it can also cause some excitement and some hope too. So much like the Israelites, you're getting ready to cross that Jordan River as Rock Hill. And maybe you feel like you've been wandering around the wilderness a little bit, and you're ready to cross over, but you're not really sure what the other side is going to hold. Well, here's a truth. No matter what Rock Hill has been through and all of other churches have been through the last few years, the mission of Rock Hill has not changed. The mission hasn't changed. The mission of to help people know and follow Christ and love and lead in His likeness, not only in Lawrence, but around the world, that hasn't changed. Uncertainty is not in our calling to that mission. The uncertainty is how we're going to actually implement that calling. And that's what we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. So three times, I want to, I want to go to that text in Joshua. And I'm not going to read the whole story because it's a really long story. It's a great story. I would encourage you to go back and look at that text when they, when they crossed that, that Jordan River. But there's, there's three verses or four verses there that highlight what I think we want to talk about this morning. Three times in chapter 1 of Joshua, God says to Joshua, as he's giving him these instructions about, about crossing this river to a place of uncertainty, God says to Joshua three different times in these, these three verses, uh, he commands them to be strong and courageous. Look at that text if you have that. Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he says this, Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. And do not turn from it to the right or the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth and you are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So God three times told Joshua to be strong and courageous. I think he's saying the same thing to us. So even if we are now the ones that are saying we've never seen it or done it like this before, we need to be strong and courageous. And if when we, we cross that river to the other side, if if things are changing too quickly or not quickly enough for us, be strong and courageous. And, and if after crossing that river to that place of uncertainty, we don't really recognize that, that ministry territory any longer, be strong and courageous. I think one of the hardest as we cross that river, if, if crossing that river to that place of uncertainty, that new season of ministry requires us to lay all of those previous uh, ministry endeavors and some of those things that we love to do so much and maybe even our our sweet spot in ministry if it if it requires us to lay all of those onto the table so that when we cross the other side we have to then determine what we take off the table to determine what's viable to help us in that new season of ministry on the other side if it requires us to lay all those on the table be strong and courageous because God promised he would be with us wherever we go and crossing the Jordan for a church, 
might be painful sometimes, but wouldn't it, wouldn't it be worth it to no longer wander around in the wilderness, but instead be able to move forward? I want to close this part before we do the question and response and, and jump out of Joshua and actually to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. For most of us, Daniel and Revelation are a couple of those books that we, we usually set aside uh, as last resort because they're just kind of weird sometimes, I mean, to be honest. And so Daniel has that histor historical account, and then it gets to that place where Daniel is seeing the future, and that's being revealed to, to Daniel, much like Revelation was. In Daniel chapter 12, Daniel is, is kind of at a loss, and he's, not, he's, he's confused. He's, he's not certain what, uh, what he's supposed to understand by all these visions. And so the, chapter 12 is the last chapter of the book of Daniel, and there's one last revelation or vision that, that God provides for Daniel in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel's been crying out to God, and he says, God, I don't, I don't understand what's going on. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't get this. And so there's this last vision in Daniel chapter 12 that Daniel says that there's, there's a man over the middle of the river dressed in linen. And, and on each side of the river, there are two other men dressed in linen, dressed in white. Biblical scholars believe that the man over the middle of the river is the angel Gabriel. And when Daniel is crying out and saying, I don't understand, I don't get this, I, I'm concerned, I'm uneasy about what this looks like and what that, this might mean for me, then the angel Gabriel says, in essence, to Daniel, Daniel, don't worry. This is about all the information you're going to get, but that's enough because God has this under control. There's an old Hebrew saying that God has both banks covered. So as we think about crossing that Jordan River to, to this side that we know and love, to another side that we're uncertain about, even in our uncertainty of what the future holds or what ministry might look like on the other side of the river, like Daniel, we need to be reminded that no matter what happens, God has both banks covered. Now, Jim, uh, Brian, you guys come up and we're going to do some question and response. And this is going to be kind of a dialogical. Uh, they'll ask some questions. I'll respond some and they'll maybe ask follow-up questions or have some additional responses during this time. And we want this to be kind of a relaxed setting, so I hope that will be that for you. So since you guys are sharing a mic, I'll, I'll probably step here, and then you guys can pass it back and forth. Does that work? Thank you, David. Great setup. And, and like David said, we really want this to be a dialogue. And I think the only other caveat I want to give is, like, there's no way in the 20 minutes or so we're going to do this. We're going to cover every angle and territory. We may not answer questions that you have. And that's that's true. Any we, we can't load everything up on one conversation or one experience and expect that to be some kind of silver bullet fix. That's not how we're looking at this. But we do hope that we can glean with David on some perspective uh, and wisdom out of his uh, experiences. So I think David, our first question, and maybe you've already answered this, so we'll see. We'll see. Um, yeah. What have you seen, noticed, learned? What are some of the big things from your vantage point that you've seen as communities have gone through the last three years and yeah. the transitions? Yeah, so, uh, and I'll try to 
try to be as brief as possible, but I want to make sure we try to cover some of these. And so I've got, I've probably got more stuff than obviously we can cover in this time. But I think when churches go through challenging times, as churches have through the last uh, few years, and not even then, but I mean, this is not the only time uh, church life has been hard. Uh, but when churches go through challenging times, what usually occurs is um, what can cause them to go through challenging times or when they're going through challenging times is they take their focus off the mission and then move that focus to systems to try to fix it. And so they take it off of that calling, that mission of a congregation, and start trying to look at systems to fix it. Think of two decades ago when, when churches thought, hey, we're, we're not reaching younger people, so let's change the music. I, I think that was, that was a systems change instead of necessarily a, a calling change. Not that we didn't need to change the music, and I think we did at some place, but sometimes when we take our eyes off the mission as a congregation then, then we, our focus then is on preference focus instead of mission focus. And so when we, we get to that place where the, the focus is no longer on the mission, we, we look for those systems to try to fix that, and we look to those systems to try to fix it, then we focus then more on preferences. Then when the people of the church start focusing on preferences, you start hearing language like, um, uh, what's in it for me? Or what, what am I going to get out of this? Or maybe statements like, I don't like that. And since I don't really like that, I'm going to go someplace else where, where they're doing that because I like that. And so we start looking at preference focus when that occurs. Let me use a quick illustration. My, my mom and dad, my dad died a couple of years ago, but before he died, the last 15 years of his life, he was in a wheelchair, powered chair, and he could transfer himself. But my mom, uh, who was about the same age as my dad, would, would, when they went to church or to a restaurant, she would have to help him get into the car and take that, that wheelchair around to the back of the car, put it on the lift, strap it on there, raise it up, and when they got to the place, they'd have to do the same thing. It didn't matter where they went, she had to do this, rain or shine, snow, summer, or winter, whatever. If you were to ask my mother if that were her preference for the last 15 years of life with my dad, that wouldn't have been her preference. But the reality is my mom loved my dad more than she loved her preferences. And she was willing to sacrifice for my dad because she loved him more than she loved that. So I think sometimes that understanding is, is when we stop being mission-focused and start being preference-focused, we need to turn that back around. And if we put our eyes back on the mission, that could then encourage healthier relationships within the church. So in other words, uh, instead of foc focusing then on preferences, we then focus on deference. I'm willing to defer to the body because I love them more than I love always getting my own way. So that's more thoughts on that, but you guys jump in because I don't want to be the only one that talks. I'm going to go off script just for yep. a second, if I can, because like one of the thoughts that came to mind as you were talking is that our mission, you read it earlier, is to help people know and follow Christ. And one way we've unpacked that is loving and leading in his likeness to the ends of the earth. Mm -hmm. That by its nature, we've understood is not a quick process. Yeah. You know, to know, help people know and follow Christ. We're, we're not looking for particular singular experiences. Uh, we're not camping all out on simply conversions. We're, 
we're trying to help people come into a friendship, a trust, a relationship with Jesus, lo- loving and leading in his likeness. We mm-hmm. have, we've kind of understood all of that is formational in nature. Not that there aren't experiences in it, but I know one of the temptations has been like you put all that in a blender and that's what, what's going on in the church in our community and feels like you take the lid off. There's, there's, there is a temptation to like, got to fix this. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes when you start thinking about, okay, we got to, we got to fix this. Then, then you start looking again at systems of, okay, let's make a list of five or six things. And if we do these five or six, six things, this is going to fix what we're talking about. But you mentioned too, that, you know, you're becoming like Christ. We never become, we are becoming, we never become a, a, a disciple. We are becoming a disciple. So it's an ongoing process. So it's not like if we if we get those that punch list done, then we are we're there. It's a it's a constant process and battle. So that we always have to fight. Uh, I I do think too is if we think about how how do we be more more deference focused and preference focused. Uh, that that passage from Romans twelve one that talks about we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. So how we focus on deference instead of preference is by offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. But you remember, I think it was D.L. Moody, uh, the great preacher, once said, the problem with the living sacrifice, it keeps crawling off the altar. And that's the, the reality of that, was we are constantly becoming, and sometimes we, we want to be deference-focused, but we still love our preferences. So we've got to keep coming back to that. So, so to kind of end this little part here before we talk about some more questions, I, I think if when we are our, our preference focus, we're, we're asking what's in it for me. But when we're deference focused, we're asking what's in it of me. Just a, a little nuance there, but it's what, what can I give to that? Not what can I get? Yeah. So I had a question. It's probably not on the list. And it's so, fine. um, so you, you're talking about before we came off about the, the story from Joshua about crossing the Jordan and kind of making a, parallel to churches in the last few years, our church in the last few years, just our society has gone through a lot of things Mm -hmm. and kind of you, I pictured it like the the wandering, like the Israelites were. And so what does it look like for a people, a congregation to cross the Jordan? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that could be, your answer could be in, in the form of a, hey, there's this church that has struggled 15 years ago, and, and this is what it looked like for them. This is what was on the other side. But yeah. what does that look like to um, to stop wandering and have the courage and strength and boldness to cross and to move forward? Not forsaking what's behind, but how to move forward in the midst of difficulty or yeah. wandering. Yeah, so I, I, again, I think you've got, you've got to start with that understanding as we do this together. Um, we, You know, if individuals cross, and it, sometimes you have to, you have to kind of bring those people along with you, and we have to look over our shoulder to make sure that they're with us. If they're not, sometimes we need to take a step back as we're crossing that river too. I think there are some characteristics, and maybe we, this is a good jumping-off place, Brian, to talk about. You know, what are some characteristics of some of those healthy churches that that? Uh, and and let me say, um, there aren't very many right now. I mean, the, the churches are asking these same kind of questions of, 
you know, how do we become healthy again instead of how do we ever become healthy? How do we become healthy again? But I think there's some characteristics, and I think, again, some of those characteristics of what we need to focus on that we haven't focused on before is those, those foundational elements. We need to come back to those, our mission. But also, I think even as the body, when we focus on changing uh, practices uh, without uh, remembering that we need to land first on the principles, those biblical and theological principles first. So what that, that looks like, even in, in a worship service like this, is we need to spend more time in Scripture and prayer and communion. Uh, but, but what happens in, sometimes in church life is we elevate other things and minimize those when if we come back to those things as our foundation, again, those principles, practices change. Principles don't. don't. So the practices on the other side of the river, Brian, may change, but the principles don't. So when, we, when we're, we're kind of still lost, again, come back to that mission statement and those principles, that those are the foundational things that don't change. And so when we start getting kind of lost on the other side or disjointed, we need to round people up and bring them back to that and then kind of reboot together and then move forward again together. And then, then the, the principles then will frame the practices. What happens when where conflict arises is when we invert that or conflate that, we start with the practices and then try to apply the principles to that. That never works. And I think that's what's happened over the last few years too. So again, scripture, prayer. One of the things, let me talk about prayer because we talked about communion some, but, but prayer is one of those elements too <clears throat> that I think when we're, when we're lost and not certain about what the other side, that we've got, that's got to be foundational. Even in our worship, prayer has become, it's been relegated to a, a, a worship service transition. You know, we, we need to move the band on the platform, let's pray. Uh, we need to, to uh, you know, have the announcements right after this, so let's pray. It's, it's like that, it, again, a baseball illustration, it's like a utility infielder. They can play any position, so we kind of plug them in any hole in the worship service instead of being a foundational conversation with the Father. So when we, I believe if we could would come back to some of those things first before start trying to change our, our practices it could help us with some of the confusion on the other side too. Uh, so uh, I, I kind of talked about those biblical principles and practices, but um, again, we can't conflate those two things. I think principles are always foundational uh, with that. So, yeah. Yeah, watching the clock, we're, we're okay now, but I'm also trying to be mindful uh, here, Dave, um, so I want to ask my question quickly yep. because I love what you're, what's, you're, you're saying and so appreciated that, those comments on prayer. I think that's a word from the Lord for us. Um, <clears throat> I think I want to ask a, a question from the other side a little bit, and that is pitfalls. Like, <clears throat> what have you seen hinder or prohibit You've, you've touched on it a little bit, and, and maybe if you, again, feel like you've already answered it, that's fine. But what, what can keep us stuck mm -hmm. or keep us from crossing the Jordan, to use that metaphor, or moving forward? What have you yeah. seen? Yeah, so let me, you know, I know we are pressed for time, and I, I want to make sure we cover these things. So I may kind of fly through these. Uh, I've, got, I've got several, and, and what I want to do is maybe uh, – briefly talk about one and then if you guys want to jump in interrupt me or or i'll stop saying any, any comments on that 
So I'm going to start with one that I, I believe, um, and I'm sure this didn't happen at Rock Hill, but it happened in all of our other 469 churches in the convention, um, that I believe was a pitfall that, that surfaced even more during the last few years than it surfaced prior to that. It wasn't, it wasn't completely absent, but it was it, during the last three years, I think it became, became even more prevalent. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just step into this, and some of you may go, woo, he's going there, but I think we need to. So um, here's kind of an uh, overarching, and then I want to talk about it. Our mission as a church isn't to win elections. Our mission is to win people. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I, I think over the last few years especially, and this is one of those pitfalls where, that churches have fallen into, is that, that our politics has framed our theology. In fact, for some, our politics has become our theology. And so we have, as, as churches, as, as Christ followers, have justified meanness in the name of guarding religious territory. And then we say to a lost world out there who has no clue what it means to be a Christ follower, instead of having the attitude, I want to develop a relationship with you to help you understand what it means to be a Christ follower, we have an attitude of condescension. And they know it. And we wonder why we're not making any headway with the lost world out there. Several years ago, Ron Edmondson wrote an article, and the title of the article is, When Did Christians Become So Mean? And what he said was, he interviewed some people and uh, restaurant servers, and they said that they asked them when was the best time for service and worst time. And they said the worst time for service is what they call the church hour. That's that hour when all the churches let out and come to the restaurant, worst tips, worst attitudes. When did Christians become so mean? We have united around what we're against instead of what we are for. We're against a lot of things. We are for Christ. And so if we could get back to that, keep reminding our congregation, again, our mission, we are for Christ. We can be against things. It doesn't mean you don't take a stand, but you don't always take a side. And there's a big difference between that. Because as soon as you take a side publicly as a church, that means those who are on the other side will never, ever test the water of your congregation together. You've lost more than half of your community. Again, not that you're not willing to take a stand, but you want to love those people into that understanding. I think, I think that's a, an area we, re, we really miss it sometimes, too. So any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, sorry, that's a pretty hard-hitting one, I know, but yeah. Um, and I, Andy Stanley wrote a book, and I don't, I don't know how you feel about Andy Stanley, and, and I've read some of his stuff and, and liked some of his teaching, don't always agree with everything he teaches, but he wrote a book called Not In It to Win It about this particular topic. A couple of quotes that I think are pretty telling. He said, um, when the focus of our churches is the culture wars, we make it hard for those looking for God to actually find him. Here's another statement that just nailed me. He said, it seems like the church believes speaking the name of Jesus isn't getting it done. So we're depending on politics to do it. I think that's a big pitfall that we've got to be careful of as we move forward. Another one, I think, is uh, when churches try to imitate what they see out there as successful and try to then import it into who we are here. Uh, we talked a little bit about this week. Each church, including Rock Hill, has its own unique voice. 
And it's your, your congregation's responsibility, your leadership responsibility to discern that voice of your congregation. Well, how do you do that? Well, you, you do that by uh, your stories that you have together, those hard seasons, those good seasons, celebrations, deaths, births. And one way that you discern that voice of your congregation, that unique voice of your congregation, this is why you can't just say, hey, if you imitate what that successful church is doing over there, that's, that's uh, discounting your own voice and their voice. You can't just import that. You can learn some principles, but you have to discern your own unique voice. And the way that you do that is to have one ear to the Scripture and one ear to the congregation and the culture to actually kind of discern that voice. And that's where you wrestle with those things together as a congregation to actually uh, discover what that voice is for your particular congregation. Those of you, uh, some of you won't remember this, but you remember... Um, the, the, the TV show, spy show, MacGyver. MacGyver was one of those guys that would be in a situation, he'd be chained up or handcuffed or locked up, and there was going to be an explosion that he was going to die. And so he would look around the room and find something unbelievable in the room and create something unbelievable with what he had available. That's what a congregation is when they discern their voice is. They look around who they have, and they say, with who we have here, we create something unbelievable, and it's our own unique voice that we're creating from. So any thoughts on that? And I've got a couple more quick ones that I think we could fly through. Yeah, I'll just say that I think what you just said, and I've heard this from in different ways from George as well, has, has maybe been these. He, he learned it from me. Okay, got yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think in some ways that, that's been, well, he, I think he actually learned it from Brian. I'm yeah, not really yeah. Sure. But I think it's been maybe the most singular helpful thing for me is Christ is the head of the church. The authority in the church is Christ. It's manifested in his body. It's not located in a singular person mm -hmm. or a group, but we have to get to who are we as his body in Christ of many parts. And that's been so helpful. Yeah. I've known it up here. Yeah. It's making its way to another place now. So yeah. it's been, let, so me, let me fly through just yeah, bullet sure. points because I know we need to wrap this up. Uh, uh, another one is that, that, that churches are emotionally and spiritually healthier when, when their attitude is participative and not passive. So what that means is that leaders don't do everything for the congregation. They're encouraging them to participate. That, that's one thing I think that churches will be healthier if we're not doing everything for them. We're inviting participation. And, and another one, too, and this is one that I could spend a whole hour on, is that churches have created a culture that encourages leaders and congregants to fake it when they come together in worship. Meaning we leave all of that baggage out there because when we come here, we are celebrating. But I, I think churches will be healthier if we say to a congregation what you're feeling uh, and how you're feeling, the best place for you to be when you're feeling that is here because we understand what you're feeling and we embrace you. It's that, that, that great cloud of witnesses that we are as a congregation that can surround those people and lift them up. So when they're coming in, uh, uh, quick story, Karen and I, my wife Karen and I, and some of you know this, we adopted our daughter at birth prior to that. 
we had tried to have children and had miscarriages, went through all the infertility and all those kind of things. I was leading worship uh, on church staff, and we had had a miscarriage midweek, and I still had to lead worship on Sunday because that was a culture when you didn't talk about those things in church. And I led worship on Sunday not believing the songs that I was responsible for leading because we didn't have a culture in that congregation that, that had the freedom to express and grieve together. So we, we hadn't even told people that we were even trying to get pregnant. So we were doing that alone. That must not be so in church life. And churches will be healthier when we say to them, whatever you're feeling, as angry as you are at God, as mad at you as you are at your spouse, this is a safe place for you to come. And when you don't feel like singing these songs as a great cloud of witnesses, we're going to surround you and sing those songs on your behalf. One more, and I'll close. Uh, healthier churches must practice continuous worship week in, week out. What we do here on Sunday is one hour of the week, and there's 168 hours. Worship continues. Harold Best talks about this. He said worship continues just depending on whom or what you're worshiping. So it's, it's ongoing. So what that means is when we leave this morning, uh, you might say, well, is, is the Sunday worship, is that the culmination or is that the commencement of worship? Yes. It's both. We're, we're sent out to worship. And can you imagine then what could occur on Sunday when a congregation has been worshiping throughout the week? Sunday would be an overflow of the worship that's been happening throughout the week. And that celebration of the family together. So sometimes we place so much focus on that Sunday gathering that we miss the other 167 hours of the week. So our responsibility as leaders is, is to teach people how to worship not only when we gather, but also when we disperse. There, there's the early nomadic people, and I'll close with this. Early nomadic people, when they discovered fire, they realized because they were nomads and they would move from location to location, how difficult it was to light a fire when they would move from camp to camp. And so when they discovered fire, they realized if we could carry that fire, that flame with us, it'd be a lot easier when we make a new camp the next night. And so they, they developed these earthenware vessels called uh, fire pots. When they would leave a camp in the morning, they would, they would take some of those embers and put them in those fire pots, and somebody was responsible to, to feed that flame as they were making their way to another camp. And so all they had to do when they arrived then is add more kindling, and pretty soon they had a fire. So what that says is to us, much like the church when we leave this place, that's, that's a flame we can take with us. It's not the platform people's responsibility each Sunday morning to start that fire from scratch. In fact, their responsibility is to, to fan that flame that's been going on throughout the week. So again, when you leave this place this morning, how you treat the server at the restaurant is also an act of worship. How you treat your family, how you treat your coworkers, your schoolmates when you go back to school. And can you imagine what a church could be like and how healthy a church could be if the entire congregation has been worshiping out there throughout the week? What could happen when we gather in here on Sunday? I wish we had another hour. Yeah, me too. But we don't. Um, ben, man, let's just close uh, with the song. We won't do announcements. I think we can get away with that. Can't we, Emily, this morning? Great. And, uh, but I think it's fitting that we would close in worship together as 
uh, one voice. So thank you. Thank you again, Dave. We're so grateful for your time Jim. with us this morning. Thanks, man. Lead us, Ben.